0: Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland, and this is Emily Gibson, and we're the co-executive directors
1: of ATX Television Festival, and you're listening to The TV Campfire. This season, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite panels from past festivals, along with behind-the-scenes commentary and some of our fondest memories about putting it all together, while also giving you an inside look to what's happening with this year's virtual festival, which we're calling ATX-TV From the Couch.
0: It's like a flashback episode and a spoiler alert all rolled into one. So get back on the couch, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy talking TV together. Emily, like, it's weird. It's, it's weird to look at this and think that, okay, so this podcast is coming out May 21st and we originally chose it because Marta Kaufman, conversation with Marta Kaufman and HBO Max is launching in about a week. And HBO Max was going to be launching with a fringe reunion. It was a very big announcement, some confusion on whether it was a real episode or a reunion. It was just going to be a gathering of them. And we were going to time it to that. Now that's not happening because production's been pushed on everything. It will eventually happen, but it's not going to be launching with HBO Max in a week. But now the shift is Marta Kaufman is going to be at
1: the virtual festival again. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good point. It was funny. I was looking at this in semi-prep for today and thinking, wow, when we made these decisions of what order These podcasts were going to be released in, which, P.S., wasn't that long ago. You just had no idea. The whole world changed so much in that time period. And it's weird to go back and think about beginning, even middle of March, when you had no idea what was going to happen and the changes that were going to take place. And I feel like this Friends reunion, there is no world in which anyone at Warner Brothers, HBO Max, thought when they made this deal with the Friends cast that it wouldn't be there in time for the watch
0: right like that was the point and they paid a pretty penny it's so interesting but then even on our side like we love marta we we've had her at the festival a few times and we love doing things with grace and frankie but she wasn't really on they were going to be filming grace and frankie it's the final season and so she wasn't on our list to have come to the physical festival but because We love each other so much. They actually even reached out and was like, is there anything that you want to do? And, you know, we were trying for something Grace and Frankie like, but we really just settled on, we're doing a topical panel called either showrunners or television, (laughs) state of the union, (laughs) keeps going back and forth, but a state of the union about television with showrunners that she is the first person confirmed on. And I just think that that's kind of cool that this podcast still has a timely
1: nature to it in that sense. I know. And we do love her. And this conversation that you will hear shortly is one of the best, especially one-on-one conversations that we've ever had at the festival. She's just so great. She's so great.
0: So in other news, in other festival updates, we're recording this 19 days until the festival. Friday will be 14. I've fully transitioned into days. Weeks have gone.
1: They just aren't a part of our world anymore. My parents are going to be very happy to hear that. (laughs) Oh, no, <laughs> they they just aren't sure about how you count time, but I think we can all agree on days.
0: I feel like you're that you're just bringing up old wounds right now, and I'm not going to take the bait because now I feel like I need to to defend myself. Barrel through, barrel through. I, no, you did it. You need to take on the responsibility that you you started this, and I don't think anybody wants to revisit it. But I will send some people your parents' way that believe my particular way of counting, or disagree with both of us. Because <laughs> <Also> um, <true. laughs> really, there's a fine line between those two things. But we are announcing some stuff this week um, that we can talk a little bit about. I think it's funny, I was looking at what we, there's a big announcement this week, last week as well, um, as we are getting into two weeks till the festival. Um, But the three things that really jump out to me in this announcement that we're doing uh, all have very strong ATX physical festival. I hate that. I have to call it that, but physical festival vibes um, that I'm so excited are going to be a part of ATX TV from the couch, which is HBO is still going to be our opening night with Perry Mason, which we have been talking about for the real-life version. Still working on all the, the bits and pieces, but Perry Mason will premiere in mid-June. So it just was really great timing. And if you don't know, it's based on a legendary television property by the same name. And stars Matthew Reese, who we adore, and who came to the festival for the Americans. And
1: Tatiana Maslany, who we also adore, from Orphan Black, who has not been to the real festival. I know, I know. We can talk about Orphan Black when we get to the quarantine check-in list. However, I do have to say, I'm so excited for her to be part of ATX, no matter what, in whatever version. The fact that the first time she's part of the festival is virtually and not in Austin where I can just hang out with her is a little sad to me, but that's okay.
0: I'm hoping that anybody that's a part of the virtual festival will make a note to come to the physical one, the real life version of it. At some point, but it's just it's just a beautiful sort of little group of people. And so I'm excited that HBO's they're such huge supporters and that this is still working out. Also, our justified writers room is booked for 2021, but has transitioned into not a reunion of Justified, but a retrospective look that FX is helping us put together with Graham Yost and Michael Dinner, who's a director, and Sarah Timberman, who's a producer, and Timothy Oliphant. Also, never been to the festival, so I'm a little sad in that sense, but also hope that this is what loops them in.
1: <laughs> can we put into contracts that no one has to sign? <laughs> if they're part of the virtual festival, they have to come to the physical festival. Within, I say, two years. They can have okay. two years to come. Sure.
0: I mean, they should come to year 10 because that's just Agreed. a big deal. And then lastly, we already had announced Gloria Calderon-Kellett is a part of our Celebrating Authentic Stories panel. And she's obviously on our advisory board. But we, funny enough timing-wise, so one day at a time, will be airing about a week after the festival, an animated episode. They have pivoted and they have an animated episode. And so we're gonna do a panel with them and check our website and things like that to find out who all's involved with it. But the thing I love about doing One Day at a Time as part of ATX TV from the Couch this year is the first time we ever did it, it was the women of One Day at a Time. It was on Netflix at that point. Rita and Justina and like the whole crew. And then last year, we did a version of it with new people that at that point, they were had been canceled by Netflix and had not yet been picked up to pop. Right. So they were without a distributor. And we did the panel and two or three weeks later, pop picked them up. I don't know if we had anything to do with it. You guys decide. Maybe. Maybe. And then this year, they're doing a panel about having to pivot and they're animated. And so the journey that we've been on with One Day at a Time just feels, it feels right that they're a part of the virtual and they have this very specific thing to kind of talk about
1: that has changed. I do feel in a way that we have nothing to do with the making of the show, a little bit of ownership of it, just in a, we've been on this journey with it from the beginning. And uh, I love that. Backing up,
0: I mean, we heard Brent Miller, who is a producer with Norman Lear, like a year and a half before they made the pilot or even they they had Mike Royce and Gloria, and it was Norman. and they basically told us they were doing a remake of one day at a time. And then we had Norman as our awardee and heard a little bit more about it. Like we have been on this journey like pre it ever being picked up.
1: It is funny thinking about sitting out on the balcony that year season five ish, I'm going to go season five. Um, when we honored Norman and Justina was there for queen of the South and the sitting on the balcony with the two of them talking about the remake and us having no idea, I mean, knowing what it was, but not having any clue how much it was going to play into our lives for a number of years. And it's just like, what a cool memory that I have of us sitting there talking to the two of them and the love that they had between the two of them as well. It was nice.
0: Do we need to silence <laughs> our mascot slash old man dog that is barking it? I'm going to guess the mailman. Okay. Dexter has now been uh, reallocated into my room. I think he was just sad <laughs> to be left outside. He wanted to be a part of it. So he
1: made himself known. Well, it is fun that this is the first year he may actually get to attend the festival. No, may, may. He will get to attend. I don't know. I don't know.
0: I realized this last week and it was so exciting that Dexter is going to be on the couch and participating. Now, how exciting he'll be for viewers. (laughs) I don't know. He will probably sleep a lot, but he does like to curl up next to us on a couch. So that's happening. Yes. So those are some of our festival updates, which you may or may not already know. And hopefully everybody is registering for free. Guys, on Eventbrite and subscribing to our YouTube channel, there's going to be a lot of things we don't announce that are surprise guests and little, you know, fun extras that we're getting from past festival favorites and people who have never been to the festival before. I'm very excited for all of it. Going into sort of our quarantine check-ins, I do want to say I'm feeling okay right now, but I had the most terrible of nights sleep last night. Um, that did end up with me watching about nine episodes of Schitt's Creek in the middle of the
1: night. Well, if anything is going to make you feel better in one of those nights, I feel like Schitt's Creek is is the thing that's going to do that. But walk me through this. What, like, did you go to bed at your normal time? Did you do your your normal routine? Like, what happened?
0: I did. I hosted a trivia night last night. It's very Texas themed. I had a couple of martinis. all in okay. admit. Okay. But I went to bed at like 9 30 and like was ready to go to bed. Was very tired. That's my normal time. I
1: was about to say those martinis hit you hard. Good job. Dude,
0: those are my normal time. That has nothing to do with the <laughs> martinis. I would like to go to bed at 9 30 whenever possible. Fair. Um so I went to bed at 9 30, fell asleep like immediately and woke up about 11.45, which whenever you go to bed early and you wake up at a time where most people are going to bed, it's a very weird I feeling. Say, I
1: was going to bed at 11.45. So that is a weird, okay, there you go.
0: So I got at least two hours
1: of sleep at that point.
0: Woke up at 11.45. was like, okay, I think I went back to sleep. I think it took me a minute or what could have been a half an hour, or an hour. But the next time I looked at the clock, it was one forty-five. but I feel like I didn't sleep for those two hours it was probably like an hour of sleep and at 145 like my body was tired but my brain was just on like nothing was spiraling I was not anxious about anything and I laid there at 145 and was like okay I could turn the tv on I could try to just get myself back to sleep I eventually turned the television on and put on Schitt's Creek and basically kind of went in and out of sleep and kept waking up as it ended or started (laughs) again (laughs) um so every 20 minutes I was waking up pretty much because they're really not long episodes. Evan came up to bed about one forty-five, which is also his normal time. And I was like, hey, he was like, are you awake? I was like, yeah, I've been awake for a while. <laughs> he was like, oh, okay. And like we had like a full on conversation. He goes to sleep immediately. Sorry, Evan, for sharing this, but he's been snoring a little bit. And it was like a, a variety of snores. Uh, oh, he's going to love this. Little snores, big snores. The reason I bring up the snoring, and I actually haven't told them this, it was fascinating to me. It was almost like Inception, I think, like as a dream state. I kept going in and out of sleep between probably two thirty and five thirty, and having some really intense dreams. Like their dreams, they don't make sense when you say them again, but they were very vivid. But I could hear the snoring in the dream, like the dream me could hear the snoring, and could tell myself, "Oh, you're in a dream."
1: Those are the weirdest moments when you know you're in a dream.
0: Yeah. But it was the snoring that alerted me to that fact. Like I was getting kind of anxious in these dreams. Like there was a fire and I was lost and I couldn't get out of a thing. But I then was like quiet for a minute, was standing still, like about to kind of have a panic attack. And I all of a sudden heard the snoring in the dream and was like, oh, you're in a dream. You should just wake up. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the main part of that was the snoring bit. But I don't think I was anxious about anything. Then did you finally just turn off Schitt's Creek or did you just get up? I turned off Schitt's Creek at some point and I think went to sleep. It was helping me kind of get quiet. And then I think I just slept for maybe another hour and a half and I got up at like 6.
1: I got up at 5.30 this morning and that is because I we've run out of hours in the day that it's just, I mean, I had to force myself up. Not, I didn't have to drag myself out of bed, but it was definitely as we get closer, I just have to get up earlier because there's, once the day gets going, the days are gone. So having those few hours in the morning, which we've talked about to each other, that the love of those couple hours before the world wakes up where you can have a moment to yourself, but then also really get things done and really actually get through some of the to-do list. And even this weekend, all of a sudden last night, it was Sunday night and. All the things on the to-do list, half of them got done, not because I wasn't doing them, but because they were just taking longer. So many things were happening that I have now hit the spot where now 5.30 a.m., which is very early for me. You've obviously been getting up at 5.30 for the past however many weeks.
0: So I mean, it's normally early for me, but my quarantine schedule is a... There was one morning I woke up at 4.30 and that was way too early. Like it hurt. The day hurt. But between 5.30 and 6.30 has been the regular wake up. It's not driven by a panic. It's just, I'm. it's a weird lockdown thing where I'm just like, just get up. It's very quiet at that particular time, but it's not a panic about all the things I have to get done. Maybe the first week or two it was like, there's a lot of questions about finances and loans and grants and like, what are the resources and what am I looking up for, looking things up? So it was, but now it's just sort of stuck. I kind of like it. 5.30 5.30 is a little, six Six is a nice number. Yeah. Well, anyway, I just thought I'd share that in the ongoing quarantine food check-in list. I don't have any like big announcements. I did, we tried a new food truck this weekend called Abo Youssef. It was a Mediterranean
1: Greek. It looked delicious. The spread you guys got, I was like that, nice.
0: It was very good. I was very full that particular day. Um, and then I went back to an old favorite. We did phrases off of South First. Delicious. Like Evan got like tacos and something, uh, a quesadilla, I think. But I get the bowls, which mm-hmm. I know you do too. Yep. And that feels like so different than like, I don't know if they're technically a Mexican or a Tex-Mex restaurant, but the bowl is why I go there. And so it felt like a solid choice because it was like mostly vegetables. And Did you also get Brussels sprouts? I put Brussels sprouts as a chicken substitute in the bowl. Oh, interesting. How did that work out? It was great. So then I have to get separate Brussels sprouts, which was exciting. Um, But then the big (laughs) quarantine update is I made another loaf of bread and I made butter to go with said bread.
1: It was delicious. I am so impressed. I wish you didn't tell me how easy it was because you could convince <laughs> me that it was like the hardest thing ever done. And I would absolutely believe you. And then you brought me some of the bread and butter and it's amazing and might be gone already.
0: I'm sure it. it like it was, it was very fun. It was better to do the bread again. And the butter thing, I keep telling myself, I'm like, I realized that obviously we all know how to churn butter, like in theory, like, and it, it's connected to a lot of work. A lot of people said like in kindergarten I put it in a jar and shook it up and down and it became butter. And I was like that seems like a lot of work. I put it in a mixer and turned it up to 10 and left it alone and it made butter and buttermilk, which I haven't decided what I'm making with the buttermilk. Probably biscuits, which also explains whatever quarantine weight gain. I all of this takeout plus that is just, you know, COVID-19. I don't know if it's that far, but like 19 pounds, like the freshman 15. I don't know, but it's just happening.
1: I did have a, this was kind of random, but on Sunday morning, so Neely, my niece that you know very well, um, who is seven, almost eight, you know, who adores you and loves you being around except when that means I won't pay attention to her. So she FaceTimed me when I was out for a walk on Sunday morning. And so I was FaceTiming with her as I was walking, which I normally wouldn't do, but no, none of my neighbors were out and it was quiet enough that I was like, okay, I'm just going to talk to her now. So then I get home and I tell her, Neely, I'm going to make breakfast. So I'm going to hang up. And she <laughs> looks at me and is a, like, why do you have to hang up? Why can't I just keep FaceTiming with you. So I set her up on the kitchen counter so she could see me and made breakfast while talking to her. And then she would ask me about what I was doing. She was also putting together a spy bag of, she likes to play spy. And so we have code names and was putting that together and showing that to me. And then we sat down and ate breakfast together, or she watched me while I ate breakfast. This whole thing was about an hour. And I was like, this is actually Something that I've never really done before, but a really nice hangout with someone where we do so many virtual hangouts right now where we're just sitting down and talking and staring at that person, maybe having a cocktail or whatnot, but I was active doing things. She was in her room playing and doing different things. We were talking the whole time and then to actually sit down and have a meal with her. I was like, this is really lovely and I really appreciate this, of course. That cuts to later in the afternoon, which you did witness when she FaceTimed me later. And I told her that I couldn't talk. So then she hung up on me. And then she she sent me a text message saying, I won't call you for three weeks because she knows the festival is in three weeks and that we're going to be very busy. And so she very dramatically told me she was not going to call me for three weeks. And then she called me about 30 minutes later. And then she called me 30 minutes later and she's also already called me this morning. So I feel like maybe she's over it by now, but uh, we shall see how that goes over the next three weeks.
0: Yes, it was very entertaining to watch. I actually think she would have thrown more of a fit until you were like, look who's here. And she immediately was like, hi, Kate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> i think she did put out a little bit of a better behavior knowing you're there which she normally wouldn't do so she must have been caught off guard yes
0: well that'll transition us into what we've been watching i mean mine are sort of basic i started watching sex education season two i forgot how much i liked it it's fun i'm in it and then i t- already told you i we did our trivia night, which was super fun. But the big thing that I finished this weekend was Mrs. America. We have access to the screening room. So I watched the last two episodes on the FX screening room. They haven't aired yet for people who are watching along. You're not behind an episode this past Wednesday. And then there'll be one more when this podcast airs. It was it's so good and it is so moving and well done. And I enjoyed watching it with Evan and sort of like the things that we talked about and the things that are the same and the things that are different. And like besides Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan that are in it, I didn't know any of these women. Like I didn't know who Phyllis Schlafly was, which is who Kate Winslet plays. Mm, nope. Caped. Kate yep. Blanchett. I did that last time. I'm sorry. All good. You got it. Kate Blanchett plays. Yeah. There's just a bunch of like, additional characters in history that are very interesting. So I talked to my mom this weekend about it. And it's just funny how TV and history and stuff like kind of connect to things. When I was talking to my mom, she was telling me that Phyllis Schlafly, Kate Blanchett's character in the show runs an organization called the Eagle Forum, which Mm -hmm. I know from watching the show, but my mom then filled me in that. So when I was in sixth grade, they put me in private school. I went to a public school before that in small town, Texas. And I always knew that part of the reason my parents are both educators and like work in the school system. My dad's an English teacher. And I always knew part of the reason impetus for them changing schools for me was that there were a lot of changes happening in the school curriculum. And one of them was starting to ban some books, which is hmm. like the worst thing that could happen to an English, to an English teacher. And like kind of work towards more standardized testing and like not group learning and like all these things. And my mom told me on the phone this weekend that that was all led by the Eagle Forum. Wow. Like it's a conservative group and like that they had certain feelings about certain books and that the family that was the ones pushing that forward in Montgomery school system at the time in the, in the nineties was the Eagle Forum. And it was just weird to connect this pretty big moment in my life. Yeah. To the TV show. And this person whose name I never knew, and I never
1: knew it was like who the Eagle Forum was or any of that. Isn't that crazy? And what what impact that actually had on your life that, I mean, there's really no way of even really being able to tell had you continued, you know, in public school, where that would have taken you. Just in the friends you would have made and the people you had been around and what college you would have ended up going to, it's just kind of crazy to think this trajectory change your life with people that you didn't even know. And now you're learning about.
0: Yep. Anyway, so that was, that was the big watch for the weekend. I
1: think. How about you? I am basically rotating between Buffy, Orphan Black and the Bold Type. Just keep circling through them. The Bold Type. So good. So good. It's just a happy place. I love their friendship so much. I'm so excited for them to be at the festival. Like, the virtual festival and then the physical festival again, hopefully sometime soon, but they're just delightful and friend goals, kind of how uh, Friday Night Lights was my marriage goals rewatch. This is friend goals rewatch. Also Orphan Black just keeps getting better and better on this rewatch. I remembered how much I loved it and I may have seen season one more than once. I can't really remember, but now I'm into season two And I mean, my favorite thing is still when Tatiana Maslati plays a clone, playing a clone, sometimes even playing a clone. It's just, she's so good. And I know she got a lot of recognition for this part, but you're watching her play all these different characters and I completely forget that she is all of them. Mm -hmm. It's mind blowing how good she is at this and how each character is so distinct and how much I love each of them. So that's been really fun. Also a little more violent than I remember, but that's okay. (laughs) I remember the,
0: I think it's a further scene, but the pencil in the
1: eye. Uh, Yes. So you just met, we just met, met, quote unquote, Rachel. And all of a sudden, everything came back to me about what happens to her. And I was like, oh, it's not going to go well for you. But then on the other side, I do have a very long list of things that I want to watch post festival, like looking at your sex education season two and this is America. There's all these shows that are so great that I do want to dive into. I just don't have the brain space or capacity or time right now. But unlike the rest of the world, I have been listening to a lot of podcasts. I know, I think this is really funny. We talked about this on
0: our walk last week that podcast listening is down, hopefully not for the TV campfire. I hope people are tuning into this lovely check-in between the two of us. You were not a a massive podcast listener. Nope, nope. And every time I talk to you, it's a
1: new podcast that you've listened to and I'm like this is hilarious. I think it's because I'm walking so much that I am walking way more than I was ever driving. And I just listen to them when I walk. I used to be music, but right now it's podcast. And so I'm to the point where I get through all the ones I'm listening to regularly and then have to search for new ones, which has never happened to me. But basically the two things I quote to you all the time where I get most of my information are the Hollywood Reporters, TV's top five with Leslie Goldberg and Dan Feinberg, and then IndieWire's Millions of Screens, uh, which Ben Travers is on, and they're just both delightful. A lot of information, and I do regurgitate it to you constantly. That is true. The one that I really want you to listen to is Brene Brown has a new podcast. I can't think of what it is actually called, but you can find it easily. But this past week, she interviewed Mark and Jay Duplass, Mm -hmm. and it's about their book that came out in 2018, I believe. Their partnership and their friendship and their brotherhood is so fascinating. And so it just reminded me so much of us and the things that we've been through and the way that our partnership works, which is interesting because they don't necessarily really work together anymore or at this point in time, which I didn't realize that they had split ways. The things that they've gone through and how they talk to each other and how they conduct their business. I was like, this is fascinating and makes me me, one, really want to read the book. And two, I was like, there's a lot of things that we could take out of this. So I feel like you should listen to it and then we should talk about it. It is called, Brene's podcast is called Unlocking Us. Uh, Well, I will absolutely
0: listen to that. I have listened to them do interviews separately. I feel like maybe not together, but I heard Mark on early on in Dak Shepard's Armchair Expert. And I remember being like, oh, that's a very interesting way that you approach like production and various things. So I do,
1: I do like listening to them. They don't do interviews together because of their the chemistry between them, and they talk about why they don't do interviews together. They also talk about why they don't like going to events together. Basically, they hate small talk, and if they're at an event together where they're both having to make small talk with a group of people, they can just feel the other one judging them so much because they know that it's a lie and that it's false and how <laughs> much they're having to put on that they're like, I can't do this with you. So when they go to events, if they both have to be at the same event, they won't even talk to each other. they kind of say hi as they walk past each other, but stay separate because they can't be in the same small talk group together, which I found fascinating. Very interesting. Because I feel like you and I are very good at small talking with people.
0: We basically do zone defense. Yes. I think. Like if it's a group, like you pick someone and I pick someone and like we can have the conversation together, but I think we check in with each other and like cover more ground by being representatives at, e- at each other's ones. like
1: Because yes. normally, I
0: think that the thing that'll happen with the two of us is we've just heard all the things that the other one's going to say. Yep. And so there's yep. a little bit yep. like,
1: I know what the end of this is. I'm going to go get a snack. <laughs> I will say, though, you are the best wing person for if I'm starstruck about someone, making sure that I get to meet that person.
0: Yes, that is true.
1: You've done it. At least two times that are the most important two times. You've probably done it more, but the Queer Eye guys and Lin-Manuel Miranda, you, you made those introductions happen. I I don't know that I actually said words to the Queer Eye guys. I was very starstruck. The two difference
0: between them, they were both around at the Emmys, so they were both nominated the years that we met them. So they. I think we were also in places that people were approaching them to congratulate them a lot, both groups, Lynn and them. The thing with the Queer Eye guys were, there were three of the five of them and it was very loud and a party. And so we literally, I didn't even ask you. I grabbed your hand and walked up to them and like said something and you said something. And then Bobby was like, do you want to take a picture? And he took a picture with us and then we dispersed. Whereas Lynn In the best not creepy way, we kind of stalked at a party and found the right moment to (laughs) approach him. He was talking to one of the guys from Pose, who we could determine they weren't friends. They were also, the guy from Pose was also saying, I'm a big fan. So it felt like an insert moment. Yes. And we found the right moment. Cause I tried to do it once earlier and you were backing away from him one step at a time in a way that I was like, if you want to meet him, quit retreating.
1: <laughs> I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. He walked in and I even knowing he was going to be at that party, as soon as he walked in, you were like, this is our chance. You took a step forward. And I took about 12 steps backwards. And I just, it took me a minute to mentally and emotionally prepared to talk to him. And then when we finally did, he was so nice and lovely and gave us his full attention for the few minutes that we talked to him. And then he very politely excused himself from the conversation in the best way. In the best way.
0: It was great. Well, in that, I think we can (laughs) introduce the (laughs) panel for today. But the thing I'll say about it is... Like we said earlier, it's a conversation with Marta Kaufman. It's a one-on-one interview from season five of ATX Television Festival 2016. We have one of our first original podcast episodes ever is, if you scroll all the way back to the beginning, is a conversation with Marta Kaufman and her daughter, Hannah Cantor, that is also one of the greatest conversations that I think in a way that I oftentimes get more starstruck, as you do. As well, But can get very starstruck by creative people. And France Mm -hmm. was such an important show for us and our generation and a lot of different things. It's just nostalgia in a box. And it's still comfort food for me when I watch it now. So getting her to – this was the first time she ever came to the festival. Getting her here – this panel that we're releasing today I remember being very starstruck and then even more so on the next one when we were in a very small room <laughs> with her and her daughter for an extended period of time getting to experience stories that like I just am still so proud of this conversation I'm so excited she's going to be a part of our very first patrol festival so with that I hope that uh, the audience enjoys a conversation with Marta Kaufman moderated by Ben Blacker
2: Um, Hi, you guys. My name is Ben Blacker. You're welcome. I am uh, the co-creator of... No, I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. That's why they have me here, which uh, is a a podcast about the business and process of writing television. And if there's a show that you love, we have probably talked to one of the creators or writers of it. So go check that out. It's on the Nerdist Network. Um, I am myself also a television writer, Uh, I'm currently working for the Netflix DreamWorks series Puss in Boots. Check it out. It's not embarrassing. Um, It's a talking kitty cat, but it's fine. Um, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, which is also a podcast on the Nerdist Network. Now you know my credentials. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I have... uh... When I started doing the Nerdist Writers panel, I had a short list. Well, it started out as a long list of creators I was dying to talk to. Because the reason I started doing it is because it didn't exist. If one of you had made a podcast where you talk to TV creators, I would have just listened to it. But you didn't, so I had to do it. And now look where I am. <laughs> we have fun. Um... This, and, and I got to speak to, over the three, almost four years of doing the writer's panel, I've gotten to speak to all of these creators who were important to me and to television and influential to me and to television, except for one. That changes this morning. Uh, so I am thrilled to get this opportunity to talk to Marta Kaufman. Please welcome her. You're gonna have to clap for a while. A lot of stairs. <laughs> yeah, keep going. That's your step. <laughs> Took his shoes off. I was smart. Not gonna do that with you. Smart. Very smart. Please. <laughs> Welcome. That's, our, that's comedy, right? That's free comedy for everyone. <laughs> yeah, we don't care. They know who we are. <laughs> uh, welcome, Marta. Thank you. Thanks for coming to Austin. You're welcome. Austin's fun. How, yeah, you're having a hell of a time, right? I had
3: barbecue. It was really good. Burped yeah. it up the rest of the night. It was awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk about Grace and Frankie. Okay. Which is a terrific show. These guys enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure you have talked about this to death, but where did this come from? How did, how did the show begin? How did you decide this is the show to make the, at this time? Um,
3: it started as a fluke,
2: mm-hmm. honestly.
3: I was having lunch with a woman named Marcy Ross, who's the head of um, our, the, the studio that's doing this. I've known her for a while. And she happened to mention at lunch that, that Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin wanted to do TV. I thought she meant together. (laughs) So I called my agent and said, I hear Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin want to do a TV show together. And she said, I don't know, I'll call you back. 20 minutes later she called me back and said, they do now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's how we started with Jane and Lily. And then it was a matter of coming up with an idea that is worthy of actors of, of their level. And I was sitting in the car Hannah, will you stand up, please? I'm going to embarrass you. That's Hannah K.S. See her? She is my um, creative executive. She's also my daughter, but here's why she's my creative executive because she's the one who said, What if their husbands fall in love with each other? That was her idea.
2: Is that in arbitration, then, <laughs> the credits? <laughs> um,
3: and then after that, it was a matter of, there were so many things I wanted to explore that fell into this category so well, um, women and aging, and what happens after a certain point in your life, and the third chapter, and hope,
2: mm-hmm. um, and it all seemed to be the perfect way to do it. When, uh, at what point in this process did the characters present themselves? Because it's interesting going in knowing who the actors are. It's so interesting.
3: It it was the relationship that presented Mm. itself, not the characters as much. We were sitting with Jane and Lily one day. Are there any children in here? (laughs) Do you mind if we swear? No, they're in it. (laughs) So we're sitting together, and Jane, who's had a very, very active past, was talking, we were talking about Cialis and other penis medications. (laughs) And she said, you know, there's also a pump that you can use, like a a pump. And she said, there's there's this cream and there's also, she was taught how to give this certain kind of injection in the penis (laughs) and there's a beat and Lily says, you have got to get younger boyfriends. That's it. And we thought, there's, there, there's the relationship right there, that's it, that's it. Um, the characters just came out of what we wanted, what we knew they were good at, what we knew their strengths were, um, and to have a nice disparity between them to, see them to see how they could come together.
2: But there's also, I would imagine, the it would be very easy to make them the odd couple you know, to make them sort of cartoonish. Uh, but what I think people are responding to in Grace and Frankie is that these are all very real characters. These are very real people. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, thank you. It, that, was, that was our goal. Yeah.
3: And part of that, and it's part of the reason we, we did it at Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't want Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin on their network? But part of the reason you can't do this kind of show on network is you don't get a full 30 minutes you get 21 plus. So you have to do a one minute cold open, then you get six minute slots where you can tell your story. You can't tell a deep story that way. Yeah. You can only do the jokes and you know, get from A to B to C. But with all these new opportunities, you can do different kinds of shows. You, and it's not just being single camera. You can do single camera on network, but it's still not gonna dig deep. We wanted to do a show about real people and a real situation, both the comedy and the pain of it, and it had to be on some pay station. Mm
2: -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I would imagine when you make that decision, though, you have to have conversations about tone and, you know, how jokey... Hundreds
3: and hundreds and
2: (laughs) hundreds of conversations
3: about tone.
2: Yeah, what were those conversations?
3: You know, it was interesting, we wrote the first draft, the only note we got on the first draft from Netflix was lean into the drama. Oh. We wrote a second draft, we can go a little further in a couple of scenes. And we thought, okay, this is is where we're going to live. Somewhere around the third episode, they said, you can lean into the comedy a little more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because they had to trust that our comedy would stay rooted. Mm wouldn't just be about the jokes. Yeah. So once they were able to trust us and to know that you can do both comedy and drama in the same moment, then they sort of backed off that. And it's it, look, we didn't get to do a pilot.
0: Yeah.
3: When you do Netflix, you go straight to 13. You don't get to make mistakes. So um, when you go straight to 13, you do your thing, and you have to learn. The show begins to tell you what it is as it goes on. And then once it starts to do that, you, you can sort of ride the wave.
2: Did, were you guys, and this is sort of a nerdy production question, but... I love nerdy production. Were, uh, how many scripts were you in before production started? And were you able to go back and then, you know, adapt earlier stuff to what you guys eventually figured out the show was? We shot
3: the first episode, had a two-day hiatus actually right after that, which was helpful for nothing. Um, and then I guess by that point we may have had four scripts, but we don't go back until the table read. Once we go to the table read, when you can hear it, because it changes, it changes at that point. Um, so we didn't do too many changes except, you know, the the notes that we got and addressing all of that and doing, we still, it's still like our 27th draft by the time you get to the table, but then we waited. Once we had that production draft, we waited, unless there there was a production
2: issue. Sure. I I mean, you had been working in network TV for so many years. Uh, Was there that instinct after the table read or even at any point to say, this isn't funny enough or this isn't punchy enough or... You know, to kind of lean into that networkness? No.
3: No, there really wasn't. The only time that would happen is if a joke felt like, you don't. Know, it shouldn't go, you shouldn't have a joke there, or we need a joke there, it's just not funny enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, we never were like, oh my God, we have to go out on a laugh. There's no, la- we never did that. <laughs>
2: What did uh, tell me about your room. You put together a killer room. I love my room. <laughs> are you are you a room person? Do you love being I in the, love the the writers room? room?
3: I love the write Look. You get to sit with really funny, really smart, completely insane people.
1: <laughs>
3: you know, for like 12 to 18 hours a day. It's fantastic. We have a room that ranges in age from 59 to 26. Um, we There are 10 people in the room, four of them are gay, one of them I think isn't sure, but we're waiting. Um, we have three parents, um, a number of people who are engaged, some who've had partners for a very, very long time, single. I mean, we have the complete gamut. And every, I like a room where everybody brings their own specific thing. As a room, we can improve, you know, we can add in the rest of it. But everybody has to bring something. They have to bring something to the table. Someone has to be good at story. Someone has to be good at the jokes. Someone has to be good at the, the realness of it. Are we? Is this honest? Somebody has to be good at contemporary things that I'm just missing um, and it's the most we do a lot together every Friday we go to my house at the beach and we work there um, we we socialize we're gonna go do drag queen bingo and karaoke
2: I think most people assumed you were going to yeah,
3: yeah. I mean we it's I I love the room I love love writers
2: I love them let me ask you this uh, I, I think and I've heard this quite a bit that you know the room is a team and everybody brings something to it. What do you think you bring to a writer's room? Food. (laughs) That's the Hollywood Squares answer. What is the real answer? Um, (laughs) This is a hard one
3: because When I was doing friends, I wasn't sure of that answer. Mm -hmm. Um. And part of why the first season was so difficult, it was my first thing that I was writing without David Crane. And I didn't know what I brought and discovered it. Um, And I think what I bring is heart. I think I bring a warmth. I think it is very important to me that my characters, they don't have to be lovable, but they have to be people you want to let into your home. I mean, we watch TV in our pajamas, and we're naked, and we're ironing, and we're folding towels, and we're cooking, and they're in our homes at the most intimate times. You have to want them there. And I think that's something I bring to it. And along with that heart, I also think I bring um, that tone. Mm -hmm. I feel like my life is always walking that dramatic comedic line, and that you can just as... You can laugh. You can cry. Probably, if you didn't laugh, you would cry. Um, yeah. And then, and then, discovering that it's really, really fun to make people cry—that's <laughs> that's really fun. I gotta say, that's that's a blast. You know, it's a kind of like, ooh, that's almost as much fun as making them laugh. <laughs> what is your? Uh, it's an interesting thing. But I'm also—I'm I mean, yeah. a very strong leader, but I run a very democratic room. If this things are going in a bad direction, I. I we have to, there's just no time. Yeah. Um, and I do, when things are going not in a good direction, I will quickly reel it back. Um, and I'm, I'm a strong voice in the room, but I'm not the only voice in the room. There are, including me, 11 voices in that room, and everybody has to say their piece, because everybody has their thing, and, and they bring it, and they have their thoughts, and you've got to hear them.
2: I, I want to dig a little deeper on that because we've had uh, on the podcast Greenstein a number of times and Alexa, all the Friends writers who talked about this democratic process where you know, they were all 22 years old and had these voices on the first season of Friends and, and on Dream On as well. Um, but I'm curious about applying that as a showrunner. How do you put your ego aside? How do you be... It's not about my ego. It's about yeah. it's, what's the good show. What's
3: the best thing for these That's characters? That's easy to say,
2: though. But, uh, you know, a lot of showrunners can't do that. Well, fuck them. <laughs> Correct answer. I hear stories.
3: I hear stories about that. I hear stories about that, and I find it, I, it, it breaks my heart. And I actually think you can tell in the shows. I think those shows tend to have a darkness or a meanness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can see it. I think you're right. um, And and democratic may be the wrong
2: word. Highly collaborative, let's say. Highly
3: collaborative and the most passionate one wins. Mm -hmm. That's generally what happens. Someone who has the most passion and the the ability to articulate that usually wins.
2: We uh, did a podcast recently where we convened a bunch of the first season Friends writers. (laughs) And I think it was, uh, Greenstein was telling us a story about fighting for Paolo to be an Eskimo. Was that what it was? (laughs) (laughs) These are the kind of arguments, though, that he was, he had all the passion in the world that this was the right choice. So how do you as the showrunner, on, on any of the shows you've worked on, start to put that passion away. Tell someone to put that passion away. Um, I think when
3: people come up with with ideas that are genuinely rotten, (laughs) um, I'm not gonna be the only one going, Mm -hmm. an Eskimo? (laughs) What are you, nuts? Um, There's gonna be a bunch of people doing that, and that's that's where it helps that everybody has a voice, so I don't have to be the only one going, He's going to have a big fuzzy hat on. I don't want that guy. Um, What's sexy about an Eskimo? (laughs) Uh,
2: What, this is sort of a a broad question about Grace and Frankie, but what did you learn from, again, years in network that you've brought to running this room and producing this show?
3: Well, um, there's so many things I learned. I learned I can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. That, you know, a lot of, I, I somehow as a showrunner thought that it had to be all on my shoulders and have discovered the, the need to um, ask other people to, to create a vacuum so other people can step up. Um, <clears throat> we're getting into some deep stuff here. That's how we do it. Um, I guess the other thing I'm learning is it's a lot about actors and about actors' process. I mean, we always knew when we were doing Friends that everybody had their own process. But here now we're working with these four uh, ridiculous professionals um, that have these enormous careers. And there, each one has a process that is theirs. And you have to respect that process when you're shooting. We know that after eight hours Lily Tomlin gets tired. It's hard for her to remember lines at that point. She's not as as invested at that point. We have to deal with that. So at eight hours we have to then start shooting Jane and not Lily. We're gonna have a long day with the two of them. Um, We learned Jane is really funny at the table read but then she can overthink a joke. We've gotta shoot her jokes first. (laughs) We have to shoot them first. And this is what, you know, Like you sit down and you talk to a director and say, here's what you need to, look to know about these characters. Martin always wants to have the last line in a scene, whether it's written or not. So, don't say cut yet.
2: Well, he's used to being the president. He's used to being the president, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the husbands' characters for a minute. Uh, they're phenomenal. I mean, this whole cast is ridiculous. The kids, I know, it's ridiculous, the husbands. Right? It, I mean. By the way. Yeah. I I
3: can't just say this is ridiculous. Tracy, Tr- Tracy Lillian Field, where are you? Stand up. You may not be able to see her when she stands up, but she's tiny. She's tiny. This is our casting director.
2: Oh, fantastic! Do you want some water?
3: you can 't have a great cast without a great casting director, so I have to start there
2: um, well and, and I mean this is not the first time you 've gotten very lucky with having a great cast, and it's yeah. clearly uh, you know a testament to the talent of the casting director, but also to a script that draws this kind of talent absolutely to a, stri- a script that draws this kind of talent, part of it is that they
3: only have to do thirteen sure you know it's not it's not um, Netflix. Is not as glamorous as HBO. I mm-hmm. guess a lot of people don't know how to find it, including my aunts.
2: <laughs>
3: no idea how to do it, none. I told them I'd send them DVDs. They don't have a DVD player.
2: <laughs> I'm going to have to perform it for them, <laughs> the whole thing. Um, what was your. Oh, about yeah, the men. but. Yeah, but it, it, you're right. It doesn't have the kind of cachet that an HBO does. Um, it's hard to find. Uh, and you've got you know, ant-aged actors here. They know what they were getting into? Not only do they know what they were getting into, and they all had their questions
3: that, that we've answered, but here's the thing. These are four actors in their 70s who all have a job where they're not on the outside of it. Mm-hmm. It's their show. You know, they, they're they there. They're the, These people work all week long. Um, it's their... It's about them. It's not about the young people and they just happen to be the parents. It's about the parents and there happen to be young people. Um, and they are, and we've heard time and time again, especially from the men, they're so happy to be working. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's a shame that that it is, is the shame. case, but it's a
3: kind of ageism that we're hoping this, mm-hmm. this has an effect on. When we did Friends, we were told by the network, no one's going to watch a show about people only in their 20s. You have to have an older person, <laughs> like Pat the Cop, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Coffee Joe. Uh, um, we said no, and we kept saying, if the stories are universal enough, you don't need it. So now we're on the opposite end. And I think very few networks would have gotten behind it the way that Netflix has because they understand that TV is now targeted Mm -hmm. and that there are specific, not age audiences, but groups of people that we're looking for. And then you hope to open it out from there, but they're looking for groups that other networks aren't. They want an older audience. They want an LGBT audience.
2: All right, we have plenty of time. I have a lot of questions. Okay. I want to talk about Pat the Cop for a minute. (laughs) Of course, America's favorite lost character. Uh He's like
3: Um, Pete Best. Were there, (laughs)
2: exactly, the sixth friend, Uh the seventh friend. Uh, Was there an attempt to work in the, I mean, you guys were so green. You had done Dream On, but this was was going to the big leagues. And I know when you make that jump, there is an attempt to, or want to, appease the people who are giving you the money to make this thing.
3: Um, What we did... Instead was brought the parents in hmm. because it felt more natural. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was the second episode we had parents in there.
2: Oh, really? Um, I was think it was. Early on.
3: It was quite early because he had to tell them about his divorce. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that was our, what, the way we decided to deal with the note. And this is what I always tell writers. You've got to hear the note Somehow. You don't have to, you have to find out what the note is under the note. Um, you can't just, so we knew Pat the Cop was never gonna fly. Um, but we also said, okay, we do, these characters do have parents. Bring them in. Let's have
2: them around a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. What, uh, what kind of notes did you get? I mean, you had 10 years of this show. Okay, what kind I'm of gonna notes give you my you favorite got? note. Please. I'm
3: gonna give you my, I have two favorite notes. One was, we had a script, it was supposed to be Rachel's birthday, and the very, very, very smart studio executive said, how will we know it's her birthday? It's like, well, the balloons, the cake, people saying happy birthday. So that was a good note. The other note, which is my absolute favorite, we were doing the pilot, and the man who was the head of the network at the time, bit of a misogynist, (laughs) lovely, lovely guy, Um, (laughs) and he was having trouble with Monica sleeping with a guy on the first date, and he said, in a note session after we had just done a a sort of dress rehearsal in front of an audience. She deserved what she got. At which point fire came out of my nose. (laughs) Thank God for David Crane, who can do a hell of a tap dance. And he sort of, you know, pulled the guy away and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) they literally, for the next dress rehearsal, handed out a questionnaire. And one of the questions was, for sleeping with a guy on the first date, do you think Monica is A, a slut, B, a whore, C, too easy, (laughs) D, none of the above. And it was all none, nobody cared, except this one guy. (laughs) So, but as much as I hated, hated, hated that note, The note under the note, she needed to care more. If she cared more, you wouldn't think about it that way. If she already had some sort of investment
2: in him, then. So, you know. (laughs) There's value to even that note.
3: And I have to say, it ended up in a very funny thing because we we had a running misogyny issue. And he was a little hurt by something I said once. So I sent him a basket of pantyhose, tampons, (laughs) lipstick, nail polish, like a big basket of girly things. And he sent me a Harley Davidson jacket.
2: Very nice. Um, what, What were the particular, for you, uh, again, Remember 10 TV years campers, on a show, what were the particular the pandemic, challenges ATX in nine is the going later years of friends? June 5th
1: through 7th, 2020. It's ATX TV from the um, couch. For information about the status of the festival, go to atxfestival.com the, We had follow several challenges. on social media One at was, ATX One was, it
3: was getting really expensive. Now,
1: back to the panel.
3: One was, when are we going to end this? This year? Okay. What, next year? What? When? So we had several false um, uh, crash Courses and How to End a Series. Um, and the other hard thing, the hardest thing, you know, your show grows up over a period of time. And you, you have, the show really does tell you things. And you have to ride its wave. Our show is a show about a time in your life when your friends are your family. You have to be able to accept when it's over. And when it's over, in that show was, when you start having a family of your own. It's different now. So the hardest thing is, is listening to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you guys were the rare show that, it never felt like you were going to run out of story. I mean, these six characters, could have told stories forever. There was another, they were multifaceted. There, the, the dynamics were right, and every time you thought that the end of a storyline was done, there was a fantastic turn, um, but you got out at the right time. I mean, it makes sense that the show would end with, as you say, with them starting families, which is why, to me, the question of a friend's reunion is infuriating. Infuriating. Shut up about it.
3: <laughs>
2: it's enough already <laughs> you got things end <laughs> good lord
1: remember TV campers this year due to the pandemic ATX Festival season 9 is going virtual June 5th through 7th 2020 it's ATX TV from the couch for information about the status of the festival go to atxfestival.com or follow us on social media at ATX Festival. Now back to the panel.
2: Uh, listen, I want to make sure we have enough time. You guys all have questions for Marta or me, but <laughs> Just, you have questions, yes? Okay, uh, we'll, we'll make sure we get some of your questions, uh, and we'll kind of use those as jumping-off points for further conversation. Um, If you have heard the Nerdist Writers panel, then you know my rule about questions. Questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. I
3: love that rule. That's the best rule ever.
2: Uh, Reunion questions are asked and answered. Um, What we're going to do is if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will find you and call on you. Uh, I'm going to repeat the question because we are recording this for podcast. uh, And then uh, Marta will answer your question. Yes, right there. Very eager. Please stand up for your question. What would Friends have been like as a single cam and how would it have been different? How would you have written it differently? You know, sometimes things
3: happen for a reason. We, um, we pitched quite a few places and originally thought it would be single cam. We were wrong. Were there, were there network single cams at the time? Yeah, not many. Yeah. I mean, there had been Buffalo Bill and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing, the, it, it's, it's a show that didn't need to be outside. Mm-hmm. It was about the relationship between six people. We could do it in three apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, so why, why do it out there? So yes, it would have been different. It would have definitely been different. This was about living with them. Mm-hmm. You know, We as an audience were invited to live in, to you know, be part of their lives. We didn't need to go outside and to parks all that often. So yeah. Uh, And and it was like doing a little piece of theater once a week. I started in
2: theater. That was really fun. Mm -hmm. Network TV and on top of that, multicam comedy has a lot of parameters, a lot of restrictions. Are you a writer who enjoys having those restrictions? Does that help you in your process?
3: Um, Yes and no. Um, We had just finished Dream On when we went to Friends and one of the first things that happened is we couldn't say the word nipple. You know, and after Dream when we were showing them it was a little weird. Um, So we ended up using the word nippular. Got a big laugh and I thought, all right, maybe there are ways around this that work. Um, But the bigger problem was when we got to... um, At some point there was some very reactionary crap going on and we were doing an episode, this was during the V-chip debate, we were doing an episode where there was one condom left and the question was, who's gonna have, who's gonna get to have sex that night? Um, We weren't allowed to show the foil. This is not long after the masturbation episode that Seinfeld did. (laughs) We had to use the box, couldn't show the foil. And I ended up being, not long after, in a debate with uh, John McCain and Joe Lieberman. Oh my God. And Dick Wolf was on this panel, or a few other people.
2: Which you also can't say on TV.
3: Uh, and Joe Lieberman was saying that, you know, his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter was watching and, and this thing about the condom. And I said, well, you know, then turn it off, or check your TV, gu- TV guide then. Check your TV guide before you pick a show. I said, but, but and he called it irresponsible. And I said, wait a minute, how is it irresponsible? They are arguing, over, they're in their 20s, they're sexual beings, and they're being hyper-responsible by saying one of us is not having sex tonight. How is that a bad thing? Um, That was a tough thing about network when when we did the the gay wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, They put on 125 operators at NBC. (laughs) The only thing that happened that one town refused to carry, it. I think it was in Texas, guys. (laughs) Um, They got four phone calls that night, a lot of board operators, and... About two months later, we got about 40 or 50 letters all from one organization, Um, and there were people who clearly hadn't seen it.
2: Right. Yeah. This, it sort of, it raises an interesting question to me. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how friends change TV, you know, you said that people didn't want to watch people in their 20s, and now how I think Grace and Frankie is going to change things that we're getting to see in older older leads, Um, it's less a question about the responsibility, but what do you see as the role of a TV show? I mean, it's not just entertainment. We do live with these characters.
3: It's just entertainment. However, it is just, my my goal is not to teach you anything. Mm -hmm. My goal is to have you have an experience and maybe open up your heart to something. It has to come out of the showrunner's humanity. And this is where I think it connects back to the room. I believe to have a truly great show, a showrunner needs humanity. The writer's room needs humanity because it is that humanity that is translated to the characters. That is my sole responsibility. So that looking at people in their 70s, I'm not making fun of them. I'm connecting to them. You know, the, one of the things that has gotten the most response is when they talk about dry vaginas. I swear. <laughs> There's a whole episode about dry vaginas. And I have gotten more comments on that. People saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. We, we don't talk about the real stuff when you're of postmenopausal women. Mm-hmm. So my responsibility isn't to teach anybody about dry vaginas. My my responsibility is to say those of you with dry vaginas, we're with you.
2: <laughs> Which was the original slogan for the show. That's I believe. Right.
3: <laughs> that is right. That is right. All right, other questions. Yes, yeah, right here.
2: <laughs> What's the key to creating great characters? I have no idea.
3: <laughs> you know, you start with a broad um, outline of a character, you have the skeleton. And little by little, you add some details. You add the hair, you add the fingernail, you know, you sort of, you, you finish the, the exterior portrait. And then you find the actor that breathes life into the core of what you were going for. You don't do it alone. The characters change always once you bring an actor in, and you have to be open to that and see how they elevate it. So I think that's a big part of it, right, Tracy?
2: There's something too, and and whether it's about character, whether it's about story, uh, but both in Friends and Grace and Frankie and everything we've seen from you, there's an emotional honesty. And that's really hard to get on the page. And this is a deep process question, but how do you accomplish that? What is your process when actually writing a script? Well, um, in a way, there are two different questions.
3: My process in writing a script is I ride the waves. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have learned I can't just say here two hours sit down and write because I write in bursts. That's how I do it when I'm alone. I have a burst. I can feel the burst is over. I have to walk away do something completely different and free up the next level. Then I go back and I read it and I move on. And sometimes it'll last two hours and sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes I get to the end of a scene and know I have to stop. Mm -hmm. In terms of the reality of it, um, I was saying this morning, I, before I became a writer, I was an actor, and I would tell every writer, take an acting class, because you have to, as a writer, do it. You have to walk through it, and you have to say, I've just said this, she just said that to me, how does that feel? How does that feel when someone says that? What, what do I want to do? And then, okay, this is what I want to do, but should I cover that? So it's this, you have to walk through, and you have to walk through each character. You can't just walk through the one who the scene's about, because you have to make both arguments viable.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. Other questions? Yes, right here. How, I think the the kind of broader question here is how did how did the relationships evolve and was it a discovery process for you yes. and the writers? Well,
3: we knew from the beginning that there would be a codependent relationship between Saul and Frankie that we knew mm-hmm. we completely knew that um, We didn't we knew something else that we decided we wanted to unknow um, So we sort of dropped that mm-hmm. pretty early Um but it evolves. It evolves once you really get a feeling for the chemistry between the actors. And, oh, my God, you put this, screen, put this person on screen with that person. That's fun. You know, we didn't know what fun Brianna and Frankie would be, or Brianna and Bud. We didn't know that Bud and Coyote can have some real, we can really have fun with them. There's a lot we didn't know um, because we didn't do a pilot. Mm-hmm. So we had to learn it and figure it out and then jump on it. Um, so it will, in some ways, it makes second season easier, and then we'll hopefully have new discoveries.
2: I will say, this is the kind of question I don't allow, because it's not a question, but man, the scenes between, they're few and far between, and they are brief, but the scenes between June Diane Raphael and Ethan Embry kill me every time. <laughs> they, those guys have a chemistry that I is know. just so silly. When
3: she says to him at one point, "Will you talk slow, I thought you were stupid. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> love her. I love her so
2: much. Uh, yes, sir. Stand up, please.
3: I, well, I'm going to change this except question. Except the show, the show wouldn't have
2: worked. Right. I'm. The
3: show tells you what to do.
2: I do want to ask this question based on that question. Um, Writing towards audience expectations, uh, giving the audience what they think they want versus what they should get, uh, you can't can write towards about an audience expectation. That's no way to write. I don't read reviews.
3: I don't read, um, I, don't, I don't look at what people are saying. I mean, it's very different now because there's so many ways to hear what people have to say and, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of it's mean and a bunch of it isn't. So I'm not going to buy any of it. I'm just not going to read any of it. The only thing I have to go on is I want to make a show I would like. Mm-hmm. And I bring in a group of people who have the same taste as I do. Bring in, you know, your, your heads of departments, and your writers, and your producers, and your casting department, and your crew. We're all on the same boat. We're all doing this one vision. Um, audience, expectation, the only time it comes into play um, on the finale of Friends... We knew we had to get Ross and my rabbi used to stop me in, in the parking lot when I was dropping my kids off and say, when are you going to get them together? <laughs> we knew we had to keep them apart because that's more fun dramatically. Right. Um, and we also knew that by the end of the series, we had to get them together. Our job was, or the audience expects it, how can we do it so it's a, it's, the journey is fun. Mm-hmm. That's
2: where you, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, right here. Stand up. Of all the characters you've written, which is your favorite? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Of
1: all the characters
2: you've written, characters you've written who are your favorites? <laughs> and why? You realize that's like saying who are your favorite children? Oh. Also, who are your favorite children? <laughs> they don't have to be yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um,
3: that's really, that's so tough. Um, I, you know what's tough about it is it's hard for me at this point to separate which are my characters and which are the actors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I, I don't, I, I, having written them, they become something else, um, and I loved all the characters. I guess the one that, that was maybe the clearest for me was, was Dream On, was uh, hmm. Martin Tupper. Because we didn't know what we were doing, so.
2: <laughs> Are there, were there characters over the years that were particularly challenging for you personally to wrap your head around?
3: Oh, hundreds of them. Yeah. Um, John Favreau and Friends, I never, I never quite hmm. linked in with that. Um, it was more people who came in from the outside, because that, that was a tough group to break into. And part of the reason the Mona's don't work is because this was a show where everything I learned about writing drama didn't work. <laughs> you don't want to see the drama. You want to hear the friends talk about it. That's true. So it was very difficult for an outside character to come in and be welcome and feel welcomed and feel like they were part of something, except for, um, family members. Mm -hmm. It was okay with sisters and parents and, and that stuff. Um, but to bring in someone that we were supposed to love,
2: Hmm. it was hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. Uh, we have time for a couple more. Yeah. Stand up. What, what are the most important elements to creating a successful show?
3: Great characters, interesting story, pretty words. <laughs> 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 I, I don't know. I mean, there is no, I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there, and I think it's a mistake that a lot of people make is to think that, oh, Friends was successful, let's do another show with a bunch of young people. It doesn't work that way. Um, and truthfully, the only thing I can say is you need to be struck by lightning. It's, it's one of those, the stars are aligned right now and, and y- you got in at the right time with what people seem to need even if they didn't know it. You know, I, it's, it's a, so much of it is, is magic.
2: I will say, and, and you've touched on this a number of times, that it, it feels to me like the formula is writing something you care about.
3: I've always said you can't write something that someone else wants you to write. You have to write what's in your heart. Anything that we did that was terrible was because someone said, hey, would you guys write something about? And we go, okay. <laughs> and then
2: it never works. Yeah, were there uh, post friends? Were there wrong roads? Were there temptations to go do, you know, something that you didn't care about?
3: You know, I right after Friends, I was going to take some time off, and, and Peter Roth, who's the head of Warner Brothers, asked me to run a show that a woman wrote that she'd never done TV before. Um, and I said I would do it, and it was not good. It was not a good idea. I mean, I met some amazing actors and an amazing director and had... A good time but I wasn't proud of it. Mm-hmm. And then I went and did a documentary and I found that very liberating to learn to tell a story in a new way. And after the documentary I wrote three seven-minute films for a YouTube channel and got to I directed them and that was again a new way to tell a story. Then I did five short films about breast cancer and five short films about mental illness and I'm like oh my god there's there are all these ways to tell a story, and I'm beginning to realize that what I wanna tell has a little, has something a little deeper to it, but it's always gonna have comedy. And then I could, we, we went out with four projects this year and sold last year, two years ago, and sold all of them.
2: Sure. So. That's amazing. Uh, all right, we, we have team. time for one more, and I wanna get someone way in the back. Who is the furthest back? I think I think it is you right here in the sunglasses who is looking around. Stand up. No. <laughs> Hi. Hi. How important are individuals in this show on the breaks? Just looking at the two worlds and the two different families is so entertaining. Uh I know
1: that
3: there are two back. Isn't that the best vase ever? <laughs> I love that vase so much and our, our production designer's mother made it. Oh I kid you not, she like does vagina painting, TV she's Frankie, is by she's ATX Frankie, ATX isn't that the best thing ever, you know, that's, that's so Myers. much fun to do For more information with, with on this your Festival, production team, it is Festival. so much fun to create or the, check the out world, our social media and because at Lily ATX loves Festival. to work from the outside in, it helped her a great deal mm-hmm. to get a sense of where she lived and what are the things that are around her, um, and you know, it's, it's a It's a tricky road sometimes because in Grace's house, we always felt it was Robert's. That he decorated it, not her. Um, So we really had to think about the three different spaces and that the beach house is defined by both women.
2: And what? Oh, the Ryan Gosling chair? Yes. (laughs) I love that chair. What is is amazing about that is there is emotional depth attached to the Ryan Gosling chair.
3: And by the way, they sold out. Oh my I couldn't even get one. I was like, I want want me a Ryan Gosling chair. And they're like, no, they're
2: gone. (laughs) They were gone. They sold out. You're welcome. Uh, we'll we'll finish as we always do by asking you, what are you watching on television these days? What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, your writer's room, uh, your friends? Um, I don't watch comedy. That's fine.
3: I don't watch comedy. <laughs> it's work. <laughs> I love... You know, I was a... a... <laughs> I like Game of Thrones, I like Homeland, I like The Killing, I mean seriously. Um, My daughter and I love to watch spooky things together. My youngest daughter and I will sit and we watch The Following we watch, you know, we watch all that stuff. Um, Gimme Monsters, except for Walking Dead, that's too violent. I don't like violence, but I like really intricate, dramatic scandal, oh my god. (laughs) Right? I mean, I just wanna sit there with a fat glass of wine and, 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 and watch those amazing people. Um, I just, I love that stuff. I don't watch any comedy.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it often feels like work for comedy writers. Yeah. I hear that quite a bit. Um, you know what? Since you answered that so quickly, I do want to ask you this because okay. who knows if I'll get another chance. Um, I may be to leave the festival immediately.
3: <laughs> um, mm. I'm going with you if that We're, happens. Let's
2: go. We'll go two-stepping and then out of here. <laughs> uh, what is your awareness of the impact of Friends. We, my, <clears throat> my wife somehow missed the 90s and had never seen the show and we watched all 10 seasons last year. I'm so sorry. No, it's fantastic. And she said, oh my God, now I know why all you guys are talking that way.
3: <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs>
2: I mean, this is not just a cultural, a television impact. This is a cultural impact. Uh, Does that, is that exciting to you? Does that weigh on you? And are you even aware of this?
3: You know, we used to talk about when when Friends was first taking off, and I remember walking through an airport, and every one of them was on a magazine cover. Um, And I was coming back to go to work. We, I, I think it's very rare unless you're Aaron Sorkin, and have a huge public personality, mm-hmm. to feel part of that. Mm-hmm. For me, it was my favorite job of all times at that point. It was, um, I, I got to work with my best friend, and and it was such an exciting, fulfilling, creative experience. And I don't experience any of the rest of it, except that my youngest daughter's friends are finally seeing it, sure. and that blows my mind. <laughs> you know, we were in the hotel room last night and Friends was on, it's like, every once in a while it kind of, that it's still around is, is an incredible um, honor. It's an incredible honor, but um, I, I can't take responsibility for that because it was like 250 people yeah. who made that happen.
2: That's a good answer. Thanks. Marta Kaufman, everybody.
1: This season of the TV Campfire is produced by ATX Television Festival in collaboration with Anthony Luciani and A.J. Myers. For more information on this year's festival, go to atxfestival.com or check out our social media at ATX Festival.